As you may know, my name is Steve Craning. I've been friends with Dave and many of you for many years. I've done some of the men's retreats. I've preached here. And, uh, so I look forward to opening God's Word with us this morning. As we get into the message, I'd, I'd like you to imagine walking into a car dealership. The salesman comes up and he says, great, I'll show you a car. And he walks you out to the lot. And as he's showing you a car, he says, uh, this one right here, this is a hybrid. It's a 2.5 liter with double over, overhead cam, 16 valve, D45 injection, and dual VTI-I. Oh, and it's got 240 net hybrid system horsepower. How many of you would have your eyes glazed over? I would. Unless you're Chris Carlisle and really know what that kind of stuff means. Uh, that really doesn't say much to you, does it? <clears throat> well, in the business world, we call those features. Those features are what we would also refer to as attributes of that car. Now, if on the other hand, the salesman began to say, well, now this, this car is a hybrid, which means that it's going to get about 36 miles to the gallon on average. Okay, you start to understand the benefit of having that particular engine in that car. Then if he begins to say, well, now, <clears throat> that gas mileage is going to translate into less money that you're putting into gas so that you're able to spend more of your resources on your children. The moms in the, in the room go, oh, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> and they like that. That's, that's what we call moving from a feature to a benefit, the miles per hour, to an emotional benefit, a benefit that I can relate to emotionally, that I can get excited about. Well, when we start talking about God's attributes, and as you saw, the title of this morning's message is The Benefits of God's Character. The, we, we see the features, the attributes of God, and we start thinking about some of those attributes, and we're like, well, what does that mean? Our eyes can begin to glaze over if we really don't study. I mean, even if you take the attributes of God into the world and you say, well, you know, God is grace, graceful. Well, what's the world going to think of that word? Probably not the same thing that you think of that word, if they even understand what, what it means at all. If you say God is omnipotent, well, they might be able to piece that together depending on their education level. Uh, He's self-existent. Well, they got to think about that, okay? I'm not really sure where I'm cluing in here. I'm not sure what you're talking about. So <clears throat> when we think about God's attributes, sometimes we stop at that first level where we're talking about features. Well, this morning I'd like to move us beyond just thinking about the features, the attributes of God, and how those attributes really benefit us. And then even beyond that, how they have an emotional benefit. And as we, and I'll explain what all that means as we get into it. But let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 22. When we think about God's attributes, I, I'm going to divide those attributes of God into three different categories. There are those attributes of God that are in relation to himself, meaning that before creation... These attributes were all true. He's self-existent, meaning he's always existed, always will exist. He's eternal, meaning he's always been eternal. He's eternal from times past all the way forward. 
we as creatures can have eternal life, but we're still creatures. We had a starting point. God never had a starting point. He's good. He's immutable. He's unchanging. He is love. And sometimes you might think, well, who did he love before creation? Well, the Godhead, the Trinity, perfect love. And then you have all the omnis, the omniscience, the omnipresent, the, the omnipotence. All of those are who he is. Um, he was right. He's righteous, always has been, always will be. So those are all in relation to himself. They've always existed. Now, those self-existent attributes manifest themselves in a little bit different way once you add creation to the mix. So when we say God is holy, sometimes we think that means that that's something that God always has been, always will be. Well, that's righteousness. But what does holy mean? It means set apart. Well, what is he set apart from? He's not set apart from the Godhead. He's set apart from creation. He's justice. Well, what is justice? Why do we need justice if we don't have sin? He's merciful. He's graceful. These are attributes that are manifested from his existence, from who he is, those features of who he is, and they are at, uh, in relation to creation. So then we have a third category of God's attributes and how they're manifested, and that's in his relation to his children. So we can see that God's grace is a little different from all of creation than it is with his children. With all of creation, we have what's called common grace. But with his children, we have saving and sanctifying grace. Okay, so there's a little bit of a difference in the way that these attributes are manifested, depending on the relationship that he has with you. Then in Ephesians chapter 1, let's see if I can call that up here. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from our God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with what? Every spiritual blessing. That's different than what the world has. Okay? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to him as sons through Jesus Christ. So we have these blessings, these spiritual blessings that God has given us as his children. They're all the spiritual blessings of heaven. He's not withheld anything from us. So we begin to see that these attributes begin to have a benefit. And, and when we get into 2 Samuel chapter 22, David begins to show us how these attributes have a personal benefit to us as his children. And it's really phenomenal in how he does this. Now, 2 Samuel chapter 22 is a psalm that's repeated in Psalm 18, almost verbatim. Almost is the key word there. And we're going to look at both of these a little bit here this morning. <clears throat> so turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 22, and I'm going to read the first three verses. It says, And David spoke the words of this song to the Lord in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. 
He said, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. Now, I want you to look at verse 1, and I want you to look at the end of verse 3. So in verse 1, you have the introduction to this psalm. At the end of verse 3, you have my Savior, you save me from violence. Now turn over to Psalm 18. <clears throat> You'll notice that the introduction, what was verse 1 in 2 Samuel 22, is now an introduction that doesn't have a verse in Psalm 18. It says above verse 1, it says, For the choir director, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord, Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Notice something there at the end. It's missing something. It's missing this passage from... Verse, 20, verse 3, my Savior, you save me from violence. Now, why are there differences in these Psalms? It's very important that we understand this. In Psalm 22, what we have is, is, is a Psalm that David probably had spoken and had written and maybe even edited over all the years of his life. Something that he had sung multiple times. It was a very personal Psalm to him. And it was, it was something that he really, that really brought him close to the Lord. We'll see more of that as we get into it. But it was a very personal thing with him. Now, when we go over to Psalm 18, who is it for? It's for the choir director. So what is Psalm 18 for? It's no longer just David and his personal walk with the Lord. He's now saying all of Israel and really all of God's children should sing this in corporate worship. This is something that all of us can align with. It's something that we can all partake in. So everything that follows is not just for David. It's for all of us. It's for each and every one of us. And that's very important as we get into this because we're going to start to see these attributes of God that jump out at us, and we're going to say, oh, wait, these aren't just for David. These are for me. And I need to know what these are and how these apply to my life. So it's very exciting to see that. But then we also see that this section on uh, you spare me from violence is not in, in Psalm 18. Why not? Because corporately, we may not have had the same experience that David has had. This is more, Psalm 18 is more of a universal psalm for his children. It's not to speak specifically about the violence that David un undertook. It's to go with anybody, anybody who's a child of God. Some of us may experience violence, but some of us may not. So he, that part was taken out so that we can relate specifically to what Psalm 18 is talking about. But you'll see that the rest of, the, of these verses are essentially the same. 
And it's very interesting here that we get into attributes of God that are specifically in relation to his children. And this is a very uh, a very cool um, picture of who God is. It's very different than the typical attributes that we talk about with God. Most of the attributes are he's sovereign, he's omnipotent, he's omnipresent, he's omniscient, he's eternal. Those are all wonderful attributes. We rely on them heavily, and they all come into play in what's given here with 2 Samuel chapter 22. But you're going to notice a a very personal language that David has here. You'll notice that, that these attributes are attributes of God that David claims as his own. Okay, that's totally foreign to how we think about God's attributes. Now, yeah, omniscience, okay, we can have knowledge. We can have a little bit of knowledge, but we'll never have all knowledge. We can have a little bit of power, but we're never going to have all power. We can have pieces. We can have a piece of eternity because we're going to be going forward in eternity, but we can't ever be eternal past. But David is showing us here some attributes of God that he claims as his own. Then in Psalm 18, he's saying, these can be yours too. They're not just mine. They are gifts. Ephesians 1 talks about that God has given to each one of us. They are wonderful attributes of God that we can possess. And then when we look at them, we're going to say, okay, here's the feature. For instance, he says in verse 2 of chapter 22, 2 Samuel, the Lord is my rock. Okay, what do you guys think of when you think of a rock? Now, if you're a Christian, you've been in the church, you may think God. Okay, but if you go to the world and you say, what do you think of when, you, when I say the word rock? They're going to say a hard substance that you can pick up, you can build with it, you can throw it. You know, whatever, whatever you want to do with that rock, you can pretty much do. When I hear the word rock, I think back to when I was a kid and we had rock fights. Not the wisest thing in the world. <laughs> we had one, one of my friends get hit in the head with a rock and had to get stitches. That ended our rock fights. Um, sometimes, though, when we deal with rocks, we, in, we end up getting injured. But Scripture gives us a really interesting view of the rock, of God being my rock. Okay, notice the possessive there. David is saying, God is my rock, indicating that there's benefit of that. So the rock part of this is the feature. God is a rock. God is the rock. But the fact that David puts my rock on there says there's some benefit here. What is that benefit that David wants us to pull out of that? So we need to look at some of the scriptures that talk about rocks, okay? This is not a geology lesson. Let's look at what he says about the rock or a rock. In Exodus, I'm going to read a whole bunch of scriptures. You don't have to try to keep up with me and turn to them. If you just want to write the scripture verses down, that's fine. 
But this is where God really begins to reveal himself as a rock and the benefits of that rock. Okay? Exodus 17, 6. You guys may remember the story. Israel has left uh, Egypt. They're out in the wilderness. They're hungry. They're thirsty. They're parched. And God says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So we see a rock that provided living water, that provided water to give them life. Okay? Then we move to Deuteronomy 32, 3 and 4. I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. What does that tell you about God being the rock? That you can always count on him. You can always count his work is perfect. There's nothing about his work that is not perfect. His ways are justice. Again, justice is one of those attributes that's in relation to his creation. God will always be just with his creation. A God of faithfulness, so he will be faithful. All of these are words that come out of him being the rock. And without iniquity, nothing wrong. Just and upright is he. He's not going to cause harm in a spiritual way to his children. He's going to cause goodness. Daniel 2, 4 and 5, this is where it starts to get a little different. It says, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Remember, this is the, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, where you had various metals, and Daniel is interpreting this, this, this dream to him. He says, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. Those were all of the other kingdoms that were part of that that dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And Daniel is saying there's a rock that's going to destroy all of them. And it's a stone that was not cut by human hands. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. In other words, you can count on this rock in a kingdom sense. Okay, So it's not just as us as individuals, but us as a people. Christians as a people in a kingdom of God have the rock that is going to live for eternity. No, nobody will ever be able to do, undo it. Okay, So we're seeing the image of the rock grow. Now we see that that kingdom is based on something. And that something is Jesus Christ. Let's look in Matthew 7, well, you don't have to turn there, so Matthew 7, 24 through 29. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded 
on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Okay, so who is this rock? It's the teaching of Jesus Christ. But he goes even further in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Okay. Did you catch that last part? In him, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit starting to see some benefit here that all of us, his children, are being built into a dwelling place for the Spirit, okay? That's a purpose that God has for us, and he is the rock that lays the foundation for all of that to transpire, okay? Now we continue to go, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses, in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. What rock did we read that they drank from earlier? It was a rock where God provided water, right? So that rock is what he's referring to here, but then he takes it a step further. He says, and the rock was Christ. Okay? So we're seeing that this, when, when David is saying, you are my rock, he's pointing us to Christ. Now, obviously, the Godhead as well, the Trinity, but specifically, Scripture shows us that this, is, this rock, this metaphor of God being my rock, is pointing us to Christ. Isaiah 26, 4 through 7, confirms this. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy, the path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. So the Lord is bringing a benefit. Okay? It's for the low. It's for, it's for everybody. This benefit that Christ brings is for everybody. So we're seeing that there's that there's a growing benefit here. Now, when we talk about a rock, what kind of what kind of things come to mind as far as God being our rock? Obviously, there's some permanence. You know, that rock is solid. I remember growing up, I would go rappelling, and at the top of the cliff, we would tie off our ropes to a big rock, and we knew that that rock wasn't going anywhere. We could all push on that rock. We could all try to move it. You know, we could have 10 of us there trying to push on it. It wasn't going anywhere. And I'm a big guy. And me repelling, I got to know that what's holding me at the top is not going anywhere. It was permanent. And I could repel down and I had no problems. Okay? That's what a rock does. We can lean back. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever been repelling or not, but the hardest part is getting started. Because you're standing at the edge and you got to go backward, unless you're repelling forward, but you've got to go backward 
and essentially lay down as you're going over a cliff. It's a little nerve-wracking, but you trust the rock that it's going to hold you. It's strong. It's steadfast. It's consistent. Okay? These are all benefits that, that come from the rock. Now, <clears throat> how does that translate to us emotionally? What does that allow us to do? What does that give us? What are some of those benefits? Well, scriptures tell us that it gives us strength, gives us hope, gives us courage, gives us refreshment and restoration, gives us confidence, gives us rest, because we can trust that God is our rock, that no matter what happens when the storms come, the floods, the rains come, the floods rise, we can trust that rock. And we can trust that rock to take us through the storms of life. Those storms may include sickness, financial problems, death. They can include just about anything, a pandemic. They can, they can include anything that the world has to throw at us. We get to that point of death, and we can trust that God's going to take us, take care of us through that. So him being the rock has tremendous benefit. It has tremendous emotional benefit. We don't have to be tossed to and fro emotionally. In fact, if we're being tossed to and fro emotionally, what should that immediately tell us? It should tell us that we're not trusting in the rock, that our faith isn't on the rock. It's in us, and we're being tossed, so our emotions are being tossed. That doesn't mean that our emotions aren't going to get out of whack periodically, but it gives us a, a way to evaluate our emotions and say, am I peaceful? Am I joyful? Are the fruit of the Spirit working in me right now? I went through a very tumultuous time earlier this year, and, and people were telling us, oh, you need to be angry about what's going on, and I just couldn't get there. My wife did, because <laughs> it was happening to me, and I was just going... I feel like I'm just, you know, being tossed to and fro here. But there's when when our emotions get out of whack, it should tell us that our thinking is not geared toward the rock. So if you take this backward from emotional benefits to benefits to features, those those out of whack emotions should say, wait a minute, these are not the emotions that I would have if I'm really trusting in God. So if I'm really trusting in God, how should I respond to this situation right now? I should re- respond with love, with joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That tells us that we're standing on the rock. Now, David tells us several other benefits here, uh, several other attributes of God. Many of these are pretty self-evident in the way, so I'm going to move through them fairly quickly. There's one at the end <clears throat> that most people really don't understand, uh, whether you're a Christian or not. It's not, not the typical language that we use in the 21st century. 
Um, so I want to move through some of these others. For instance, um, the Lord is my rock, my fortress. Well, what's a fortress? Uh, you think of a castle. You think of a, 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 a major wall, something that's going to keep the enemies out. In Scripture, the words, the, the fortress, give an idea of, uh, of protection from a predator. You know, now David is a shepherd by trade. That's what he grew up learning how to be. So he thinks in terms of a shepherd. So when he thinks of a fortress, he's taking that idea of a rock. And then the Hebrew, you know, anytime you have a list of things, the first one will typically have implications for the rest. So here, my rock has implications for my fortress. Well, when a shepherd was concerned about his flock at night, he would build a little fortress. He would build a little rock wall, and then he would put thorns up around the side, and he would sleep at the gate. Or he would put them in a cave, which is a big rock, and he would sleep at the front. That's the idea of a fortress, is that there's nobody that can get through this unless they come through the shepherd. So David's idea of the fortress here is protection from predators. Now, it's very similar to another word that he uses down here toward the end. It's called my stronghold my refuge. Now, the difference would, between a fortress and a refuge would be that a fortress is a, a place of protection. Rest is secondary. It's more actively defensive and protective. Whereas when you get to a refuge, it's, a, it's more of a place of rest. You kind of think of the shepherd holding a lamb. That's a refuge. The lamb can rest in the arms of the shepherd. Protection is secondary. It's still part of it, but it's more passive and relational. It's more fatherly. So there's a little bit of a difference. You know, you got three words here, my, my fortress, my stronghold, my refuge. All three have similar connotations to them. They, they carry a little bit of a, a different nuance, but they're all essentially the same type of attribute. Now, I could go through and I could preach a sermon on each one of these, and we would be here for a long time. I'm not going to do that today. Um, then David goes into another one, another attribute, my deliverer. And you think about all that David's been through. And what is David thinking when he's saying, my deliverer? Now, he may be thinking back to when Moses delivered Israel out of Egypt. That may be on his mind. Um, but more than likely, he's thinking of this, the deliverance from his enemies and from King Saul. And it's interesting in verse 1, it says he was delivered from all of his enemies and King Saul. It didn't group King Saul with all of his enemies. David never thought of Saul as, as his enemy. He knew that he was coming after him, but he loved Saul. He didn't have the same emotional desires for his enemies. His enemies hated him, wanted him dead. Saul hated him, wanted him dead but he loved Saul. So those two are separated there. So when David's thinking of my deliverer, he's thinking of that God has delivered him, that there's an active uh, action on the part of God to bring him out of the trouble that he's been in. It's from it, we can experience this from enemies, from sickness, from hardship, from poverty, from slavery, any kind of natural threat, we can be delivered from any of those kinds of things. What does God deliver you to is the next question. He delivers you to safety, maybe, freedom, 
bond service. Think about as Christians were delivered from slavery to sin to slavery to God, which is a wonderful thing. Delivers us to peace, to life. There'd be a number of things that we could put on there. But God delivers us from those hardships. Next is my shield. Now, when we think of a shield, we think of a defensive piece of your armor. Uh, we think of uh, that there's a, a Captain America and his shield. Now, you know, he he's uses that to, to block anything that comes against him. And that's really the idea that shield in battle and that God protects us from whatever comes against us. Um, but it's interesting that Shield is coupled in this passage with horn of salvation. Now, some of your versions may have a comma after shield. Some of them do not. I don't know which is right because in Hebrew there's not a comma. Uh, So I tend to think of shield in connection with horn of salvation, that those two go together. The shield is defensive. So when we get to the horn of salvation, what is a horn of salvation? I mean, how many of you think think about when you were saved, a horn? Did that come to mind when you when you the Lord saved you from your sin? Did you automatically think, ah, the horn of my salvation? I did not. In fact, I really hadn't even really thought about a horn until I prepared this lesson. <laughs> I mean, I've read through Scripture quite a bit, and I know that the horn is throughout Scripture, but I never paid much attention to it. So when you start looking at what, what on earth is David saying, he's a shield, horn of salvation. Why is he called a horn of salvation? What kind of an attribute is that? God, you're a horn. That doesn't sound like high praise. But it is. When we start looking at horn of salvation, we begin to see some really cool things in Scripture. In the Old Testament, the word horn signifies a lot of different things. Um, It's obviously part of the the head structure of of, uh, cattle or a ram or a goat. Um, Could be on any of those animals. they're used for fighting. The animals with those horns use them for protection. They use them to shield off. You know, I don't know if you've ever watched any of those videos with uh, lions trying to attack Cape Buffalo. Those horns that the Cape Buffalo have can defeat a lion. It's the most amazing thing in the world. And it's a horn. Now, obviously, that horn has a lot of mass behind it as well. But that horn is what the lion is scared of. They try to get away from the horn. So that's the same motif that's in the scriptures. With the, when, when you hear a horn, you begin to think like the Cape Buffalo fighting a lion. Okay? They use them for securing dominance. You ever seen the, the, the rams bumping heads? I mean, it's one of the coolest things in nature, watching a bighorn sheep hit heads. They're fighting for dominance. So as a result, when we think of horns... You begin to think the symbols of strength, of power, of victory. These are all ideas that come up around the horn. 
Um, in fact, typically when you see horn in Scripture, it's talking about potency or power. Okay? <clears throat> and if you look at Daniel 7, uh, verses 7 and 24, Daniel talks about the ten horns. Well, what are those ten horns? They're representative of ten kingdoms, meaning the power. Um, in Psalm 75.10, God says, I will cut off the horns of all the wicked, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. So the wicked and the righteous have horns. Okay, well, that's power. The power of the wicked shall be cut off. The power of the righteous shall be lifted up. Interesting conversation right there. In other words, the righteous will prevail, no matter how strong the wicked seem to be. In Jeremiah 40, 48, 25, Moab's horn is cut off, meaning that the strength of Moab is gone. The four horns in Zechariah 1, 18 through 19 represent the powerful nations that attack and scattered Israel. So we see very clearly that a horn in Scripture represents a kingdom, the power a kingship, if you will, that it represents the power that runs those nations. Okay? But it can also apply to us individually. In 1 Samuel 2, 1, Hannah prays, In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. Interesting language. I have never used that language when I talk about my walk with the Lord. So, and for her, her strength was coming from having a son. For her to go from being barren, which was a pariah in the Israelite culture, to having a son meant the world to Hannah. Then we get into Luke 1. In Luke 1, we have the story of Zechariah. And Zechariah is the father of John the Baptist. And when he scoffed at God about having a child at his age, the Lord took his voice away. And when the child was born, he gave him his voice back, and Zechariah prays a very interesting prayer. If we will, let's turn over to, to Luke chapter 1. In verses, verse 67 through the end of the chapter, we have a very interesting uh, prayer from Zechariah. It says in verse 67, And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. Now, he's not talking about his son, John the Baptist. Okay? He's talking about Jesus Christ. And he says, And he raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. And he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, goes back to what we're talking about in 2 Samuel 22, right? To show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, meaning John the Baptist now. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, 
with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is just an awesome prayer. It starts out by talking about God giving us a horn of salvation. Now, why would he talk about us having a horn? It goes to something, when you, when you think about a horn being power, what would the opposite of that be? A lack of power for salvation. In other words, we don't have the power of salvation in and of ourselves. So when David says, you are my horn of salvation, he's saying, you're my power for salvation. It's only in you that I have power to be saved. Without you, I can't be saved. There's no hope for me except for the horn of salvation. Now, what happens? Why do we need a horn of salvation? Why can't we just have power of salvation? Well, because it goes beyond just being power. It goes into being a deadly weapon. Now, what is Christ a deadly weapon toward? Sin, obviously, right? Satan, the flesh. He's a deadly weapon against these powers that come against us. In verse 71, God uses, uh, um, uses this horn to save his people from their enemies and all who hate them, just as David had said the horn of salvation had done for him. Zechariah means primarily that the Messiah will one day literally destroy his enemies and gather his people into his land and rule them in peace. So it's a, it's a prophecy of things to come. It's also a a prophecy of what happens in us individually. You know, anytime that we're talking about the rock or a rock or my rock or my horn of salvation, there is an individual aspect to it as well as a kingdom aspect to it. So it's not just me, it's us. We're all part of this. And it's future tense as well. God's aim in raising a horn of salvation is not merely to liberate an oppressed people, but to create something. There's a benefit here. And this is where we start beginning to see that this horn of salvation is a huge benefit to us. One, it destroys our enemies. You know, in the, in the long term, eternity destroys our enemies permanently. But there's, there's something else that happens here. This horn of salvation, this power that God gives to salvation creates something in us. And what does Zacharias say that it creates in us? Verse 74, to grant us that we being rescued from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. In other words, he gives us peace. We can serve God in peace. No matter what storms of life come against us, if we truly understand these attributes, these characteristics of God, these features of God, 
They have benefits to us. And that benefit, the primary benefit that Zacharias points us to here is a lack of fear. We can do this without fear. We can do this with full confidence. We can do this with full peace. We can do this with joy. We can do this with emotions that are wonderful. We don't have to be scared. We don't have to be scared of a virus. We don't have to be scared of a storm, of lightning, of thunder. We don't have to be scared of car accidents. We don't have to live our life in fear. It doesn't mean that we live our life in ignorance or in a way that is um, foolish. But we can live our lives peacefully, having full confidence in the rock and in the horn of salvation. So we can live, that this, this horn of salvation creates a holy and righteous people who live with no fear because they trust him. This means that the redemption spoken of in verse 68 must include redemption from fear of enemies and from all unrighteousness. Now, when my children were young, I, we went to a movie and there was a lot of uh, language in the movie. When we came out, I asked them what words they heard. And they were like looking at me like, what on earth are you talking about? And I said, what words did you hear in there that kind of made you uncomfortable? You want us to say them? <laughs> I was like, well, you just tell me you know, what, what they were. You just tell me what, they, what you heard. And uh, they, they told me, and I said, now, what are those? Well, they're words. I said, exactly. They're words. Some of them are harsh words. Some of them are vulgar words. Some of them are mean words. Some of them describe human uh, stuff in harsh ways. I said, and you know what? You're going to hear those words the rest of your life. People are going to say those words, and you're going to be around them all the time. Whether you're at work, whether you're at school, No matter where you go, you're going to be around people who use those words. What is our response to those people? Are we afraid of them? No, we shouldn't be afraid of them. Why on earth would we be afraid of people because they use vulgar language? What is our response then? It's not in fear. Do we hate them? No, we don't hate them. Do we run from them? No, we don't run from them. What do we do? We love them. We pursue them, just as God pursued us. Because you know what? Except for the grace of God, I'd be doing the same thing. And you guys would be raised in a family that uses those kinds of words. But God pursued me. And we're going to pursue others. So the first job both of them had, there's not two older ones was working at Bojangles. And the kids that they worked with were potty mouths. (laughs) I mean, the worst mouths you can imagine. And they heard it every day. And and they'd come home and they would tell me all the things that they heard. I said, "Well, well, what's our response? 
You hate them? Well, I kind of do right now. <laughs> okay, that's, that's legitimate, but is that what our response should be to them? No. What is our response? It's to love them. To care for them is to be friends with them. It's not to follow them. It's not to do what they do. It's not to emulate them. It's to love them and try to show them that there's a better way. We're not afraid of them. Because we serve a great God who is a rock. He is the horn of our salvation. He has given us power of salvation and sanctification. Now, when Paul was dealing with a thorn in the flesh, just as these kids were to my kids, sort of, Paul asked that to be removed, and God said, no. Why? For my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. God right there was showing us that grace is his enabling power. That's where this horn of salvation comes to fruition in our lives. We have the benefit of grace in our lives to be righteous and holy. And that's exactly what Zacharias is saying right here. We have God's grace to be set apart, to be different, to be righteous, but we're not going to be afraid of the world. We're going to do to them as God would have us to do to them, which is to love them, to teach them truth, to speak truth to them. And in doing so, the Lord can use his word to give them grace, to give them that horn of salvation, to give them that power that they need in order to be saved. If the goal of God's redemption is to be achieved, the gathering of a people who are fearless and righteous, then he must conquer fear and conquer unrighteousness in us. The good news of Zechariah's song is that God has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Jesus is the great ox horn of salvation for those who call upon him and trust him. That means that if God is my rock, if God is my fortress, if God is my deliverer, if God is my horn of salvation, and all of the other attributes that he gives here, if he is that to you, then you have God's grace to live in his power. You are enabled to be fearless. But do we always walk in that? No. Unfortunately, we don't. That's why we come to church every Sunday morning, is to be reminded that we have that. Because we are weak people and we forget. My mind does not hold on to things very well. I forget these things. When we are in the Word daily, we're reminded of these things. I will never read the words horn in Scripture again without thinking about all this. And every time I read it, I'm going to be reminded of God's power to salvation and sanctification. That to me is marvelous. That to me gives me confidence in my Savior. That to me gives me peace. 
It gives me the ability to walk without worrying about anger. Yeah, I still get angry. But I, I can walk away from that. I can repent and I can turn from that. And I can be different. I don't have to be angry. God gives us grace to walk in a holy, righteous way. Praise God. You know, as we look at these attributes, we see that what God has truly given us is the is all of the spiritual blessings in heaven. You can tie a rope to it. And you can yank on it, and it's going to be secure. He is secure. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you because you are the rock that provides us with protection, that provides us with assurance, that provides us with security, that provides us with confidence, that provides us with so many emotional benefits, and actual physical benefits as well. You've given us all of those spiritual benefits in heaven. Lord, we lack nothing because of you. You're our rock, our fortress, our deliverer, our stronghold, our refuge. You're our savior, our shield, our horn of salvation. Father, I praise you for these simple verses that bring out so much more. They reveal so much of who you are, and your word gives us so much more depth on each of these that we can live without fear. Father, we are weak, and we often fall into fear anyway. And Lord, we just pray that you would continually remind us of these blessings, of these attributes of you that we can rely on, that we can possess because you are my rock, just as you were David's rock. Lord, I pray that as corporate worshipers, that each time that we come together, we would be reminded that we have that confidence in you. And Lord, that we would be full of your Spirit, walk in the Spirit, and that there would be fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Father, you're an awesome God. We praise you for it because you deserve that praise in and of yourself and all that you are and all that you do. Lord, we also praise you because of what you do for us. It's magnificent what you do for us. We deserve none of it. And yet you give so freely and abundantly. Help us to walk in it, Lord. Help us to walk without fear. Help us to walk in righteousness and holiness. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.